for those of you who have been to the provisional membership classes that we've been hosting over the last week, how, how many of you have been, were at one of those meetings? Awesome. Yeah, lots of you. You guys are faithful. That's good. Um, you know, if you've been to one of those classes, that one of the values that we've been talking about is knowing others and being known, right? And since there's a bunch of you who we still don't know very well and uh, you haven't heard our stories, I thought I might begin our time tonight uh, just telling you a little bit of my story, sharing a bit of um, where I've come from and, and where God found me. So I grew up in uh, an unchurched home in Rockford, Illinois, which is about an hour and a half or so west of Chicago. No one was overtly anti-God in our house, but he was in no real way a part of the rhythm uh, of our life uh, either. Looking back, I see lots of hand of God moments where he was laying the groundwork for what he would one day do later in my life. But at this point, Christmas for us was far more about Santa Claus and about the gifts that I was getting than about the birth of Jesus. Easter was far more about the Easter bunny and about candy than it was about the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. When I was one, my mom and dad got divorced. When I was two, uh, my mom married my stepdad, and he brought seven kids, yes, seven, from his previous marriage. And so I went from being an only child to having seven stepbrothers and sisters and being the youngest of those eight. So you can imagine that was a pretty smooth transition for a two-year-old, right? <laughs> my stepdad and my stepbrothers and sisters were culturally Catholic, and so uh, that at least began a little bit of an influence from the church, and we'd have maybe a, a once or twice a year habit at best at Easter or Christmas where we'd go to a service, but I never really understood any of it, and no one in our house ever really talked about it, and so it, it didn't really have an impact on my life either. Instead, the closest thing to religion that I really received from my parents and my upbringing, uh, what I picked up from them at some point along the way, um, I've come to call the, the loose moral ethic that I, I had, uh, which I took to mean something like Basically, uh, be nice to other people, and then pretty much just do what you want. So later on in high school and then into uh, early adulthood, that uh, flimsy moral code provided me lots of room with which to really develop my idols. But before all that, I was just a kid growing up in the Midwest, uh, really just learning how to pursue myself. I was really looking for um, what I could do to make me happy. I was into swimming, I was into soccer, I was into girls in an early age, probably in reverse order, if I'm honest, and I really, really wanted to be popular. So through all of that, I was learning to find my identity in success in sports, in dating the right girls, in going to the right parties, and in everything else that comes with false saviors like that. In the midst of all of that, in that phase of my life, I was experiencing lots of challenges that uh, lots of kids of divorce and blended families face. At that point in my life, I was also living with my mom, my stepdad, and uh, a few of the younger of my stepsisters, and an alcoholic stepfather as well, who would rage and yell often, sometimes at us, but more often at my mom. When I was a sophomore in high school, my stepfather died of cancer. When I was a junior, my oldest stepsister died of cancer. When I was a senior in high school, my mom remarried my real dad, and for the first time in my life, I lived with them under the same roof, first time I can remember anyway, and they're actually still married to this day. So that's a pretty amazing story. As I went off to college and then on to grad school, my pursuits were pretty much the same self-indulgent bunch that they had been uh, in prior years. 
my stated goals, these were actually conversations that I would have with people and confess this to people, was to make a lot of money. Um, I think I probably had some figure in mind at the time, I don't remember what it was, uh, to have some kind of a, a cool, high-powered uh, job that was really influential and people thought a lot of, uh, to have a hot girlfriend, to have the cars and the other toys that people without Jesus often think would make them happy. Those were my stated, and uh, I was proud to have those as my goals. But God began to stir something in me as I found myself starting to attain some of those goals, yet without the happiness and completeness that I expected to accompany achieving them. So I was asking God to show up. If he was real, I was asking him to show up, and I was praying the best I knew how to for someone who didn't know Jesus, that he would make himself known to me. And then one day, uh, one night, rather, we were, we were out at the bar, and I was waiting for my friend that I was meeting there to show up, and he was late to the bar, and what good reason would you have for being late to the bar? And so uh, I let Bill have it when he got there, and I was like, what are you doing? Why are you late? Where were you? And he told me about this Bible study that his boss had gotten him into, and uh, I proceeded then to tell me that they were having a visitor's night the next week if I wanted to come. And so I came to the visitor's night, and from there, things went pretty quickly, they happened to be studying the book of John at this particular time, and within a few weeks, I'd come to realize several things. Oh, I'm a sinner, and that kind of sucks, and uh, oh, I need a savior, apparently, according to uh, this book, or things are going to get even worse, and oh, this book, the Bible says that there's a savior that loved me so much that he died so that I could be reconciled to God if I would just submit my life to him in response, and his name is Jesus. And so I gave my life to Jesus at that time, and that was a pretty good year after that, even if a difficult one. The following year, I was invited into leadership in that same Bible study, and several of the guys on the leadership team began to ask me what to me were really strange questions. They were asking me, had you ever thought about full-time ministry? Have you ever thought about going to seminary? And the answers to those questions were assuredly no, and then what's seminary? I had no idea that that was a place where uh, guys went to, to get trained to be pastors, and I, I probably couldn't even have spelled seminary at the time, um, but no and what seminary. Those were my answers. But eventually, enough different data points, enough different people were asking me questions like that, that I eventually got the idea that maybe God was trying to tell me something. And once I realized that, uh, off I went. I quit my job. I started seminary. I married Stephanie. We had the oldest of our two kids, and then we finished seminary. We moved from Dallas, where we were in seminary, to San Antonio so that I could take my first full-time ministry role. We added one, one more kiddo at that point along the way in San Antonio for good measure. And then after a decade of full-time ministry, lots of mistakes, lots of lessons learned, and an eight-month pit stop at Mars Hill just for kicks. Here we are at Sound City Bible Church, and we're really thankful that God's brought us here. We really couldn't be happier that uh, to be in this place pursuing Jesus with these people, with you, our new church family. So that's obviously a short version of the story, um, but that's a little bit of our story. And Stephanie and I are really looking forward to getting to know each of you and getting to hear your stories as well so that we can hear about the evidences of God's grace in your life too. But right now I want to turn the attention off of my story and I want to turn it to God's story as we continue in our series in the book of Mark. So as we do that, uh, let me pray for us before we continue. God, I'm thankful that you brought us here to Sound City Bible Church 
to be with these friends and to build your church for your glory and our good. I pray that you would get me out of the way today so that your word would be clearly heard and that for each one here, each one who, it's not an accident that they're here, myself included, I pray that each one of us would hear exactly the message that you want us to hear tonight. So I pray um, that as we open your word that you would teach us now, God. Let me pray all these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, Aaron has given me, Bishop Aaron has given me um, a really hefty task tonight. We're going to be covering a ton of Mark tonight. We're going to be going from Mark 2.13, which is where we left off last time, all the way up to uh, chapter 3, verse 6, in a message entitled, Jesus, Scandal of Grace. Jesus, Scandal of Grace. And so I want to dig right into that. Um, but real quickly, before we do, let's see where we've been so far in the series so that we can have a little bit of context as we go into this big chunk of scripture that we're going to try and tackle tonight. In week one of our series, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist introduced, and we learned how the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had prophesied that John the Baptist, or someone like John the Baptist, uh, would pave the way for the coming Messiah. In week two, we saw Jesus arrive on the scene and be baptized by John the Baptist in this really beautiful scene where we see all three persons of our triune God present, and God the Father speaks from the heavens, inaugurating Jesus' ministry by saying, you, Jesus, are my son, and with you I am well pleased. That's from Mark 1.11. Later, we see Jesus overcome the temptation of Satan, setting a precedent for what we would someday be able to do. We see Jesus begin his ministry proclaiming the gospel of God, Mark 1.14 says, and calling people to repent and believe in the gospel. And then we see him call his first disciples as well. He calls Simon and Andrew and James and John. And then last week, in week three of our series, we saw Jesus heal many who were demon-possessed, showing his authority over demons, something only God would be able to do. And then he goes on to heal many others who were sick with various diseases as well, showing his authority over sickness and disease, again, something God would only have. Then we ended our time last week witnessing Jesus doing this sort of combo healing slash forgiving of sins thing that he did with a paralytic man showing his authority even over sin. Again, something only God would have. And that brings us to today. And what I want us to see today is five ways in which the truth about Jesus in Mark is a scandal of grace. And so first what we're going to see is the scandal of who Jesus calls the scandal of who Jesus calls. And then we're going to look at the scandal of Jesus' identity. And we're going to look at that in a couple different ways. We're going to look at Jesus as the new law. Then we're going to look at Jesus as the son of man. And then finally, we're going to look at the scandal of the gospel itself as we enter into chapter 3 of Mark and tackle verses 1 through 6 there. And so we'll be starting our work tonight in Mark 2.13. And so if you're not there already, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark 2, verse 13, or on your apps, the same, then uh, while you're doing that, I'll read our passage for us and we'll get going. Starting in verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What I primarily want us to see in this section is the scandal of who Jesus calls. But in order to do that, what might be helpful for us to do first is to just get to know a little bit about this Levi. While we don't have time to unpack this too much further, what we do know about Levi is that his other name is Matthew, as in the writer of the book of Matthew. We also know that he is a tax collector. And we know a few things about tax collectors in Jesus' day as well. For starters, we know that they were despised, that they were hated. And we know that the Jewish literature of the day um, compared them to thieves and murderers. They were in the same category. In most cases, we we also know that tax collectors were ethnically Jewish, which made it all the worse to the Jews that tax collectors would serve Herod, of all people, in service to the Roman Empire. Still worse, the tax collectors made their money by extracting as much as they could above and beyond the actual tax debt of the citizens. And so what they were getting for their income was what they were skimming off the top. And so these people were the scum of the earth to the Jews. They were liars. They were deceivers. And yet this is who Jesus taps to be his disciple in verse 14 when he calls him saying, come and follow me. It's interesting who Jesus calls, isn't it? Then in verse 15, other sinners are added to the mix as Mark describes the scene, probably at Levi's house, where Jesus and his disciples are enjoying fellowship and dinner with this collection of sinners. The offense that this would have been to the scribes of the Pharisees witnessing this cannot be overemphasized. I picture them with their mouths hanging open beside themselves in anger and disbelief. It was scandalous that Jesus would recline at table, eating and fellowshipping with such people. To do so was absolute acceptance of these people for for who they were, just as they were. It would have been scandalous to the tax collectors and sinners as well, because they would have likely felt exactly what the Pharisees thought them to be, that they were reprobates, that they were an alien class, that they were unclean, unworthy, unlovable, and unacceptable to God. Equally scandalous, though, is what's missing from Jesus' dinner party with these sinners. What there's no mention of, as Jesus invites these sinners into fellowship with him, is conditions. Not one thing is said about repentance. Now, repentance is deeply important, so don't miss my point here. It's the order of things that is so scandalous. For example, we might have expected Jesus to say something like, repent and believe, and then I'll have dinner with you. Clean up your act, and then I'll accept you. Quit sinning, and then we can fellowship together. Yet there's no precondition of repentance here in the text, is there? There's no bouncer at the door of the dinner party and checking spiritual IDs to make sure everyone has first uh, been caught up to date on all their repenting and that they've got their lives cleaned up before they're invited into fellowship with Jesus. The rabbinic writings of 
the Judaism of Jesus' day, however, said something very different to them. And what they would say is that only those who believed and lived out the Pharisaic interpretations of the Old Testament law, the Torah, only they were loved by God truly. Yet Jesus says something and does something very different than that. In Jesus' interaction with Levi and the rest of these sinners, Jesus first approaches them not with condemnation, but with acceptance and relationship. He invites them in out of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, which is then meant to overflow into repentance and submission to Jesus' lordship. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The Pharisees are judging Jesus for his acceptance and fellowshipping with these sinners because they believe that righteousness before God comes from acts of piety, producing a righteousness that comes from in themselves. But what Jesus is demonstrating is that righteousness before God begins by receiving God's grace through relationship with him. Now, many of you were at the membership class, and so you know that Pastor Travis was throwing candy when people uh, would get the right answer. I think if you were to, to bug him later, he would probably give you candy if you can tell him what I just said has to do with our mission statement. So just in case you weren't paying attention, I'll read it again. What Jesus was demonstrating is that righteousness before God begins by receiving God's grace through relationship with him. I love how one scholar put this idea. I think you'll have a slide of it up here as well. He says, The scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts these tax collectors and sinners just as they are. If they forsake their evil and amend their lives thereafter, they do so not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus has loved them as sinners. Isn't that amazing? And all this sounds strikingly similar to how we see Jesus respond to sinners in other parts of the New Testament as well, doesn't it? Let me read from Ephesians, for example. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Isaiah 30, where we spent a lot of time in our series so far, says this, The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. In a really important verse, Romans 2, verse 4 it warns us not to presume upon God's grace and kindness to us, begging us to realize that his graciousness and forbearance are meant to lead to our repentance and to lead us to new life. What this passage begs us to see is that Jesus came to save and have relationship not with those who already saw themselves as having a righteousness in and of themselves, but rather he came to save and have relationship with those who know their own depravity with those who know their own need. And that's just what we see in verse 17. That's what we see Jesus say there, isn't it? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he says. How scandalous is it that Jesus accepted these tax collectors and sinners? 
How scandalous is it that Jesus came to save worldly, lustful, depraved sinners like you and me? How scandalous is it that he would enter into relationship with us, not with condemnation, but with relationship and acceptance? If you're here today and you haven't yet entered into relationship with Jesus through the door of his grace, then there's nothing more important for you to do tonight than that. So if that's you, I want you to make sure that you find one of us and talk to one of us before you go. Talk to a leader. Talk to a friend that you know uh, has Jesus in their life, maybe the friend that brought you at the end of the service so that we can pray together so that you can respond to Jesus' offer of grace and forgiveness. And if you're here today and you already do have a relationship with Jesus, which many of us do, um, maybe for us what we need to do is to look at the heart with which we are responding to Jesus. Maybe we need to consider... uh, Is my worth and my identity and my standing before God based on some um, standard of pious living that I've set for myself? Or is my identity and standing before God based on this scandalous truth that Jesus came to save six sinners like me whose gratitude then overflows into repentance for sin and a life lived increasingly for Jesus? Which camp are you in? It's a good thing for us to consider this week as we pray and reflect and also in our community groups. But we've still got a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going to keep going into the next section here. In verses 18 through 20, now we're going to turn our attention to start looking at the scandal of Jesus' identity. Let me read those verses for us. Starting in 18, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, in order for us to understand the Pharisees' confusion and objection to the fact that Jesus and his disciples were not fasting, it might be helpful for us to understand a couple things first. First of all, there may be a few of us here that don't even really understand what fasting is, and so good for us to to mention that. And then secondly, we'll look at why was everyone else fasting? So the Pharisees are comparing that, that their folks were fasting and that Jesus and his disciples were not. Why were the others fasting? So first, for those who may not know, what fasting is is simply an abstaining from food for a specified period of time in reverence to God and in order to spend an extended amount of time of focus on him as we're reminded through hunger pains that God is the true sustainer and provider of everything that we need in life. But why was everyone else fasting? Well, as we discussed a little bit earlier already, in Jesus' day, living out one's faith involved obedience to an established tradition as much or more so than it did just a simple study and observance of their sacred scriptures, the Torah. So living according to the tradition of the elders is what Mark 7, 5 calls it. What that meant is that that meant prescribing to the Pharisaic interpretations of the Mosaic law and all the man-made rules that the rabbinic elders had created. And so in verse 18, where people are asking Jesus why he and his disciples aren't fasting, it's because fasting every Monday and Thursday from sunrise to sunset was part of the Pharisaic traditions which good Jews adhered to. 
But what we see in Jesus' response in verse 19 and 20 is that this whole passage really isn't so much about fasting as it is about Jesus continuing to unpack who he really is, unpacking his identity. In his initial response to the Pharisees' fasting question, he offers both, both another question and then an explanation as well. His question, which seems a little odd to us at first glance, is can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And his explanation, which isn't all that helpful on the surface either, is this. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Well, to help answer Jesus' rhetorical question to them and his explanation and help those make more sense, it's good for us to understand a little bit more about the context of the analogy. So Jesus is talking about a Jewish wedding feast, which would typically have lasted somewhere between three and seven days. There would have been an abundance of food and wine, and all the guests would have been expected to fully participate in that feast. So to think of fasting during this time when you're supposed to be feasting, uh, would have been unheard of. The whole reason you're there at the feast is to feast and to celebrate and to enjoy fellowship together with the bride and the bridegroom. But though it's subtle, there's something more here for us to see in this text as well. Because in Jesus' analogy, he is the bridegroom and his disciples are the guests at the wedding feast. And what's fascinating is when we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we see this bridegroom language used to describe both the promised Messiah that would one day come and also God more generally. Now, I don't think these will be on your slides, but if you're a note taker and want to write these down to look them up later, here's a couple of verses where we can see that. In Revelation 18, verse 23, it talks about the Messiah as the Savior of the world, and he's called there the bridegroom. In Hosea 2.19, uh, it talks about God as husband, as a husband betrothed to his people. That's bridegroom language. In Isaiah 54.5, uh, it talks about God as the maker of the whole earth, and he's called the husband. Again, we see this bridegroom language. And so what seems subtle to us would have been absolutely jumping off the page to them as nothing less than an inference from Jesus that he was God himself. Continuing in his response in verse 20, Jesus says, well, there is a time coming when the wedding, fast, wedding feast will be over, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, when it will be very appropriate for his disciples to fast. What's he talking about there? What's he talking about there? You can talk in church. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He's talking about his coming crucifixion. They just wouldn't have understood that yet. In the next section, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus continues to answer this question about why he and his disciples aren't fasting. And he does so using two additional but related analogies. And what I want us to see here, as we continue to unpack the scandal of Jesus' identity, is that the particular scandal here is that Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be a new law. Let me read these verses for us. Jesus continues in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
Well, what he's saying in verse 21 about the unshrunk cloth is that stitching new cloth as a patch onto an old garment will destroy the garment. Because when the garment is washed, the new cloth will shrink up and then pull away from the old garment and make the hole bigger. What he's saying in verse 22 about the new wine is that when you put new wine into an old wineskin, it will burst. As many of you probably know, new wine is still in the process of fermenting, and so it expands once it's put into a container. Old wineskins, on the other hand, are already stretched, stretched out, and so they lack elasticity, and so they would burst when filled completely with new wine that's still expanding. What's any of that got to do with fasting, though, right? Wasn't that the question about fasting? That's the right question. It has very little to do with fasting, in fact. The scandal that those present were experiencing as Jesus answered the fasting questions was that he was making yet another identity claim. He was claiming to have authority over the New Old Testament law, and especially so with regard to the Pharisees' interpretations of the law and their man-made rules related to it. The scandal here is that Jesus is beginning to unpack the idea that he had come to both fulfill and to supersede the Old Testament law. He was showing himself to be, in body, a new law. Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is the unshrunk cloth. The new is incompatible with the old, and any attempt to bind the gospel of Jesus with the old rules and traditions of Judaism were foolishness. What Jesus is bringing here is altogether radical and new. As we move on then to verses 23 through 28, we find Jesus being questioned yet again about his seeming failure to adhere to Jewish tradition and the rules of the Pharisees. Verse 23 begins, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, a little bit of context helps us understand this whole passage better. You see, in Jesus' day, if you were walking along a footpath next to a grain field, you were actually allowed to pluck off the heads of grain and eat them as you walked by. But what wasn't allowed was for you to just hop into the grain field and take as much as you want as if it were your own. So we've got a verse here in Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 25, that explains a little of that. It says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. That was part of the law. However, under the rules of interpretation that the Pharisees had put in place, even the plucking of the heads off of uh, the grain as you walked along the path was considered to be work if it was on the Sabbath, and work was forbidden on the day of Sabbath rest according to the Ten Commandments. If you want a few verses there to look up later, it's Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and Exodus 34, 21. So let's look and see how Jesus responds to this. He responds with three appeals, actually. The first one is an appeal to Scripture. 
So as we just read, he's recounting this story of a time when King David and his men were in a genuine need of food and how they ate the bread of the presence, which was reserved by law for the priest. If you want to look this up later, it's in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. So Jesus' appeal to this biblical precedent, which God did not condemn in Scripture, was a show to the Pharisees of how flawed their narrow view and interpretation of this law was. Whereas the spirit of the law would have placed a kind response to true human hardship as a priority over any ceremonial regulations concerning that bread. So the inference that Jesus is making here, then, is that the plucking of the heads of wheat along the path is just fine. It is lawful to do that in times of need, even on the Sabbath. Jesus' second appeal, then, is in verse 27, and it's similar. Here he's reinterpreting another part of the Mosaic Law that the Pharisees have botched and added to, reminding us that the spirit of the Sabbath law was that it would be a gift and a benefit to God's people, not this overwhelming burden that it had become. Yet these first two appeals, uh, Jesus was just getting started. This is the real biggie here next, because Jesus in this third appeal is appealing to his own divinity. In verse 28, Jesus explains to us why he doesn't hesitate at all to contradict clear Sabbath traditions and rules. And this is the scandal of the Son of Man. When the Pharisees hear Jesus say, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, it would have been like a bomb went off in their heads. They would have immediately gone in their minds to Daniel 7. And they would have been thinking about what it says in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was clearly saying here that he is the son of man in verse 28. And therefore, he is just as clearly saying that he is the one prophesied about in Daniel 7, who would have had dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall never pass away. So why does Jesus have this prerogative to reinterpret and redefine the laws on fasting and Sabbath and anything else? Because he's the son of man, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament that would come and establish God's kingdom forever. See also, he's claiming to be God in the flesh, right in front of them. This is the scandal of the Son of Man. And this is the scandal that would one day lead to Jesus being crucified on the cross. That leads us into our final bit of scripture for tonight, which covers the first six verses of Mark chapter 3. Mark begins, again, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him in how to destroy him. 
As you can see, there's a sense in which these verses begin as an extension of the question about the Sabbath that we were just talking about in verses 23 through 28 about what is and isn't lawful on the Sabbath. Now, according to the Pharisees' tradition and rule regarding healing on the Sabbath, it was allowed, but it was only allowed in cases of life and death. Knowing this, the Pharisees in the synagogue with Jesus watching him closely to see if he would yet again disregard the tradition of the Jewish elders so that they might accuse him, verse 2 says. Isn't it ironic that the Pharisees would deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath when they were so clearly using the Sabbath to plot evil? Maybe they didn't think that plotting evil was considered work. Jesus' response then in verse 3 and 4 is where we see the scandal of the gospel begin to really come to life. In verse 3, Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to come to him, and then he turns to address the Pharisees and says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? There's two separate questions here, and it's really important that we address each one of them separately because they're each talking about something different. First, Jesus asked them a question similar to the ones that we've been considering already. He asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? In asking this, he's making a point pretty similar to the ones that he's made before about how the Pharisees' traditions and rules miss the point of the law and how he has authority to reinterpret and redefine those laws and give them new meaning. But let's consider also who he's talking about when he says this, when he asks them this question. He's talking about whether it's good, it's whether it's lawful to do good or to do harm to who. So he's standing here with the man with a withered hand, and he says, is it lawful to do harm or to do good? Who's he talking about? You guys can answer. He's talking about this, the man, right? He's talking about the man with the withered hand. He's standing here with him, I'm picturing, and is just holding his arm around him, and he's looking out at the Pharisees, and he's, he's saying, is it lawful to do harm or to do good on the Sabbath? But let's also look at the second question to the Pharisees that Jesus asked, to save a life or to kill. Now, who's he talking about when he asked the Pharisees this question? Well, let's try and picture a little more what's going on. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see if we can get enough context to answer that question. So Jesus is standing there with the man with the withered hand, and he's just called him over to himself, and he's looking out at the Pharisees. So you guys get to play the Pharisees for a minute. And now, because Jesus is God, he knows what they were looking to do to him according to verse 2, right? In verse 2, it said that um, they were looking to accuse him. And also, because Jesus is God, he knows ahead of time how the Pharisees are going to respond if he indeed does decide to heal this man. How are they going to respond according to verse 6? They're going to begin to plot to kill him, it says. And so if Jesus decides to heal this man, he's in fact going to be signing his own death warrant. So who he's talking about when he asks if the Pharisees, if it's lawful to save life or to kill, is himself. He's talking about himself. Now, maybe you've always seen this when you looked at this passage in Mark, but uh, to me, as I prepared this week, this was mind-blowing to me. I'd never seen this. This is nothing less than the scandal of the gospel playing out right before our eyes. And Jesus has to decide. He stands here with this man and he has to decide, do I want to restore this man's body, this, his body's brokenness so much that I'm willing to have my own body broken in its place? 
He has to ask the question, do I want to see him live a life of hope so much that I'm willing to feel abandoned and suffer for his gain? Do I love this man enough to die in order to save his life? So how does Jesus answer these questions, knowing all the while the chain of events that he is further committing himself to if he does decide to heal this man? Of course, Jesus says yes. He says yes. He says, yes, I would rather have the broken man restored. Yes, I would rather have the hopeless man have hope. Yes, I would rather have the dying man be saved, even if it means that I'm the one that has to die to save him. Sound City, the scandal of who Jesus calls is that Jesus would accept a reprobate class of sinners like us into fellowship and relationship with him with no precondition of a righteousness of our own. Are you living as one who's received God's grace through Jesus today? Or are you living as one who's trying to earn right standing before God on your own? You can't do it, you know. The scandal of Jesus' identity, of Jesus as the new law, of Jesus as the son of man, is that time after time after time, at great personal cost to himself, obviously, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is, in fact, God. Are you living in that truth today? As one with the hope and confidence that that truth brings? Or do you live as one uh, without hope? Do you live as one who is in fear of what the day will bring? The scandal of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he is willing to die for sinners and tax collectors like you and like me so that we could live for all eternity with him. Do you know this Jesus that we've been talking about today? The one who accepts you as you are but loves you enough to not leave you that way? If you don't, let me assure you that that's why God has you here tonight. So don't leave today without talking to someone about that. Well, uh, we're going to enter into a time of responding now. To the scandal of God's grace that we've seen in Mark today, we're going to respond in a, a couple different ways. First, we're going to respond by giving. So if our financial stewards uh, want to come now, that would be great. And we'll begin our response through giving because we want to be a people who worship with the finances God has given us to steward rather than a people who worships the finances themselves. And if you're our guests, this is not for you. You're under no obligation um, to give anything at all. Second, I want us to respond uh, by considering some questions. And we can consider these as personal reflection, uh, but also in our community groups this week. And I'll post these online for us tomorrow as well in our online community. But let me read them for us. Number one, what do you believe you're standing before God to be? And what's your best understanding of how you attained that standing? Number two, prayerfully consider if there are any tendencies toward Phariseeism in your own life. Are there areas where you've unintentionally added requirements or restrictions that go beyond what the Bible intends? Number three, Share what it means to you that Jesus invited you into relationship with him with acceptance and relationship rather than a precondition of righteousness that comes from you. How does this truth change how you do and or how you should respond to others in your daily life? Number four, 
Consider and then share with your group the most impactful thing you've learned from our study of Mark 2.13 through 3.6 and how God's asking you to apply it. Another way we're going to respond here in just a few minutes is through communion, where all who have submitted their lives to Jesus are welcome to come to the table in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and in remembrance of Jesus' blood shed for us. And then finally, we want to respond in song and praise as well. So let's stand together, and I'll pray for us. And then we'll respond in in all these ways to the scandal of God's grace and love for us through Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that through a scandal of your grace, you brought Jesus into my life and into the lives of so many of those gathered here today. You have a work that you intended to do in each one of us as a result of hearing your word today, and I pray that uh, for me and for my friends here that we uh, will have been open to hearing your voice through this message by the power of your spirit in us, and that you would make what you're teaching us today sticky in our minds so that we would not soon forget and so that we might respond to it in very specific ways, both now and in the days to come. As we respond now, God, I pray that you would do great work in us, that you would change us and that you would be gentle with us as you do. And I pray these things, God, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.